Good morning, good evening, wherever you may be, around the nation, around the world, you are listening to The Supernatural Realm on WCET.FM. It's WCET 101.7 FM in Columbia, South Carolina. Columbia Talk, we're also on www.wcetfm.com, and listeners can also hear our show uh, right on... uh, uh, I can't remember the website now. UPA, Every U- podcast <laughs> known to humankind. Yeah, and, and <laughs> UPRN Talk Radio on Saturdays, uh, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern. That's you. UPRN uh, Talk Radio.com. Chip, are you there, buddy? I am, my friend. And I wouldn't miss this for the world. <laughs> I, I will say out loud, Chip, he's a little under the weather, you know. Got up on the wrong side of the grave this morning, but, you know, I couldn't miss this for the world. We've got our good friend. And, uh, you know, this is somebody that we absolutely love. And, uh, yeah, I I wouldn't miss this for the world. Dr. Gregory L. Little is joining us. He's been on both Supernatural Realm multiple times and Kindness Beyond the Veil, shameless self-promotion there. Uh, It's my show here, Mondays, 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, He's been on, on both because he's so fascinating. I mean, there are thousands of layers of fascinating between this man. He's done more for the psychology community than anybody that I've ever met or known. And it's all really, really good things. Actually, literally brought me to tears the first time we had him on here uh, because I I saw that firsthand. Um, Probably best known, at least as far as his visits here, for his latest book with uh, Andrew Collins of Ancient Aliens fame. Uh, The book is called Denise of an Origins talking about a, a species of uh, ancient uh, man, if you will, humankind, um, uh, that was around somewhere around the time of the Neanderthal, but they were um, smarter, uh, quieter. They, they had uh, use of tools, which didn't come back again until kind of late into the modern homo sapien early ages and it's so refreshing to hear people talk about ancient civilizations actually having intelligence you know Mm -hmm. that uh, i mean how can you not like that last couple of times we've been talking about atlantis you know because greg uh not only has a a background in psychology and archaeology and is an expert at uh, indian mounds here in uh, north american continents uh, but he's also uh, a vast traveler, and uh, yeah, he uh, has been to an area that we think could actually have been Atlantis, and we've talked about that. I think we're going to really focus more on Edgar Casey today because we asked him about that, and the Edgar Casey organization, which Greg and his wife Laura are uh, a big part of, it's a fascinating topic. And, you know, I wouldn't have missed this for the world. <laughs> so here I am. But, Timmy, I'm going to mute my mic for, to hide my labored breathing. And I'm going to hand it off to you as we welcome our, our wonderful friend. We call him Greg, see, because we can do that because we love him that much. 
Uh, but Dr. Gregory L. Little to the supernatural realm. Timmy. Welcome to the show, Greg. It was hard for me to get the intro out, Chip, because I was thinking about you as I was telling a guest where, where they could find us. So I was kind of uh, stuttering on there a little bit. I kind of went blank. But and, you know, we the are. beautiful thing is, you know, there is no podcast that doesn't have Supernatural Realm Radio. That's true. At least none that I'm aware of. <laughs> and if they are, they're probably some loser podcast anyway. Oh, yeah, I said that out loud. <laughs> And wow. and I hear enough of them. I mean, there's some some of them are pretty bad. But uh, welcome to the show, Greg. It's great to have you again. Hey, thank you so much, Tim and Chip. Uh, thanks for that introduction. And I, no one has ever told me I had thousands of layers. In fact, most uh, women I've known over my life said I'm like one dimensional or two dimensional. Zit. So, but <laughs> well, that's, that's another story. Yeah, it yeah. Is. But that's, that's also. Total, that's women speak for he's got. Well, that's types. true. And that, actually, I lie a lot. That was a lie. Uh, I'm, <laughs> but I've never I've never been called uh, or anybody's ever said that I have like a thousand layers. But I do have a few layers and it is unusual. I have people all the time saying, how can you be into all this? Uh, how can you do this or that and still have your feet on the ground? And I think that's kind of the key in everything. If you're really into this kind of stuff, and I know a lot of people are, you have to have at least one foot on the ground. You have yeah. to stay in reality. The late, great Brad Steiger, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if you ever got him on your show before he oh, died. I think it was oh, just a couple yeah. years ago. Great. Yeah, uh, it was like Jim Mars, like a dream get that I never got around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Brad Steiger once wrote that people are interested in discovering the secrets of the universe, but they can't balance a checkbook. <laughs> uh, and that that's literally what he wrote. And all, all he meant by that, it wasn't it wasn't a real put down. It's like you have to have your life in order uh, in order to go into all these uh, really supernatural, deep, really important topics because they can get you off balance very easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, this stuff can be a rabbit hole for a lot of people. So I think you need to keep at least one foot on the ground, stay in the world some. Uh, keep your life in balance. Don't let things get crazy. Uh, and then follow your passions, follow your interests. That's kind of what I'm about. Well, it uh, also so. helps uh, that you have such humility and we'll say that on your behalf. So you don't have to, yeah. you know, I, I mean, people that actually are humble, you know, it, it's other people that say we talk about light workers. The people that call themselves light workers are never light workers. It's the ones that other people refer to as light workers, where the best light work is done. And it's like that in any uh, career or any field or any realm. You know, we've seen an awful lot of people that, you know, once their ego catches on what they're doing, you know, their work really goes by the wayside. The quality of their work uh, becomes more about how it makes them look than anything yeah. else and and it does us all us humble guys a disservice well know? i i appreciate the words i can say this over the years i am very i have become very aware of my uh misspellings and poor grammar mm. and uh <laughs> facts that i get mixed up from time to time uh and uh that can make you very humble when you realize oh, that's no what editors how hard you try yeah no matter how hard you try, you're going to make mistakes. And I tell new writers that all the time. You cannot write the perfect book. You mm-hmm. cannot write a book that doesn't have a single error in it. It can't be done. Yes. I, and I discovered that one night I was in Oklahoma 
and I was lamenting what I had done in a training with the Oklahoma Department of uh, Corrections. And we used to do all those at Oklahoma State University in Stillwater. And I was tossing and turning in bed uh, in the Holiday Inn in Stillwater where the, the visiting football teams and basketball teams stay. And I just couldn't sleep because I had said some things in the training that I really wish I hadn't said. <laughs> and I got up, and I don't know why, I reached over, and I pulled out the Hotel Gideon Bible. And, you know, all uh, of, yes. I don't know if all yep. hotels have them today, but they every hotel used they, to have they the used Gideon to. Bible in it. Yeah. Right. Yep. Uh, and so I just opened it up randomly and looked down, and what I saw was the word the, T-H-E, repeated two times the <laughs> the very first thing i saw it was a typographical error and it's in a bible which had tens of millions of copies done repeat uh reprinted countless yeah. times yeah, yeah and it had a mistake in it and actually that made me feel a lot better about mistakes <laughs> Good uh, <one. laughs> yeah well we humans we make mistakes we are not perfect uh, we don't see things clearly. Uh, however, I think you do, Chip. With your- <laughs> I'm as close as it gets. Yeah, you're as close as it gets to being perfect and all that. <laughs> Besides, the, the difference between me lying and you lying is when you lie, it's literally a little lie, you know? <laughs> yes, I can't exactly. say that about me. <laughs> Mine is a, it's a chipper lie. It's a happy one, you know? <laughs> yeah. My ability is gone now. Uh, yeah, lots of stuff. <laughs> We got we got started in that in the oh it was around two thousand and one when I met that British author Andrew Collins, uh, and it was really on a just a whim. I had mm-hmm. I had reached the point, uh, and I had actually been to that point some years before. We could pretty much do what we wanted to do. Uh, we could pretty much travel where we wanted. We could take the time off to go anywhere we wanted, and. I really had no intention of starting to go into jungles and doing expeditions, uh, tours. I didn't mind, but I mean, real expeditions where you're not going on a tour and you're not staying in hotels, um, to, to tell you how strange that was on one of our trips, our expeditions to Piedras Negras, Guatemala, we slept on the bank of the Asuma Senta river. And you could see behind the rocks on the Asuma Senta river, crocodiles oh wow and we were tense we had there was nowhere else to stay and if you went into the jungle which was right off the edge of the river there were other creatures that were quite dangerous so anyway uh, did you lie to them (laughs) (laughs) there's actually a scene in there where the guys who were on the um the people hired to take us uh, they had this uh, conch shell that they had altered somewhat, and it made the sound of a jaguar. And they said, we're going to call a jaguar into the camp. We had a fire out there, and they made this sound, and I recorded it all. I had a really good night vision camera and recorded it. The next morning, we got up, and there were jaguar tracks in the uh, camp, in the sand. And what I actually said on the video was, we were going to call this jaguar in, and I said, I don't think that was very smart. Uh, and I still don't think that, that was one of the stupidest things we ever did. Uh, but we're here. Uh, we weren't, we, we didn't die. I got uh, dehydration really badly. 
Uh, we didn't get sick though. And that was good. And we found a lot of interesting things. And that was part of that search for Atlantis project that we did for the Casey organization. Ah, so I'm just fun on different directions there. I'm not sure where you want to go with all this. Well, I mean, there's so many places uh, that we could take you, you know, uh, and back to that thousands of layers uh, comment, which is heartfelt. Um, you know what, though? I'm going to I'm going to let Timmy decide okay. because I love my Timmy. So. <laughs> Timmy, it's yeah. up to you, brother. Yeah, Greg, for, for the listeners um, that may not know, what was the Edgar Casey Foundation about, and how did it get started? Okay, well, yeah, that's a good question, and, and I, you really, I guess, we always assume almost everybody has heard of Edgar Casey. Mm-hmm. Edgar Casey is considered to be the most famous psychic in American history. Uh, he is he has been called the father of holistic health by a publication put out by the American uh, Medical Association it was actually in the JAMA Journal, Journal of American uh, Mental, Journal of American Medicine Journal. Um, Casey was born in 1877 in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. And what you have to keep in mind here is that in 1877, it wasn't too long after the Civil War, and there really weren't uh, very many medical advances that had been made then. I mean, if you got a wound in your leg, what they did was cut your leg off. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they dumped some alcohol on it and cut it off and then try to cauterize it by putting a hot iron on it. Uh, <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. Uh, Were they things, still bleeding people back then? Uh, uh, probably gotten over that by then, right? I do not think they were bleeding then. That's a good question. I, I need to look that up. I don't remember anywhere in the Casey readings where bleeding was ever mentioned. So I'm going to assume they figured that out. Uh, But they didn't have a lot of remedies. And Mm. when Casey as a child in Hopkinsville saw little people, he saw apparitions, he became widely known by the populace in this little town. Uh, And of course, it's near where the Kelly Hopkinsville case occurred, you know, where the Kelly Hopkinsville goblins in 1955, that UFO case, very famous And Andrew Collins and I are working on that right now, trying to tie that together. A long, involved story. We no kidding. Ooh. But, oh, sure. Uh, tease us and then yeah, change exactly. the subject. Well, keep on, the, keep on track here. Uh, so when Casey was in his, in his early years, uh, he was discovered to have this unique ability. And a lot of people scoff at this, but everybody that knew him said the story is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. When he was 13, Edgar was not doing well in school. And his father came home and his father was trying to get, go through a spelling book and wanted Edgar to spell the words in his spelling book. Edgar was getting them wrong. His father got very angry and Edgar begged his father to allow him to sleep on his spelling book just for a few minutes. So his father gave him the spelling book. Edgar was in his room. He slept on the book for a very short time, and he got up excitedly, and he asked his father to open the book to any page and ask him what the word was and how to spell it. And Edgar got every single one correct. All his dad had to do was to go to a certain page number, read a certain number of words down, and say, what's the fifth word down from the top on page 15? Hmm. Edgar knew the word and could spell it. It was that good. So he had this ability that many people attested to. 
and said that he could simply sleep, sleep on a book. It's called an eidetic memory. Now, you don't normally have an eidetic memory by sleeping on something. It's if you glance at it. Well, I always wanted one that very way, you know. But. Yeah, well, that would be that would be great. You could get a doctor, <laughs> become a doctor by sleeping on all right? the medical yeah. textbooks. Yeah, right, life would be awesome then. Yeah. Well, actually, skeptics have have said that oh, Edgar worked in a in a bookstore and he probably slept on all the medical books and absorbed <laughs> all the knowledge. And to me, that is just as incredible as being a psychic and somehow accessing supernatural energy or supernatural information. It's just as incredible to me. So when he was all right, so Edgar had this ability. He was kind of a celebrity in Hopkinsville, and then when he was seventeen and eighteen. He lost his voice and no one could figure out what it was. It wasn't really, uh, it wasn't laryngitis. They didn't really know. And at that time, mesmerism was becoming very popular. And there were these hypnotists who were stage hypnotists that were going around the country doing shows. And they did one of these in Hopkinsville. And he Mm -hmm. asked, he asked for volunteers, and all the people in the audience said, take Edgar Casey, take Edgar Casey. <laughs> oh, I would love to be a fly on that wall. Definitely. Yeah, there you go. Edgar went up, and under he was hypnotized almost instantly, and under hypnosis, he, he could speak very clearly. So the hypnotist gave him a suggestion that he'd be able to continue to sleep, or be able to speak. So after a while, Edgar lost his voice again. And there was a local person who was an osteopath who had learned how to do hypnosis that Edgar went to see. And the osteopath hypnotized Edgar. And while Edgar was hypnotized, he told the osteopath to ask Edgar Casey what was wrong and to ask him for a remedy of some kind, how to fix this. So... While he was, while Casey was laying there hypnotized, this guy did, did ask Casey what was wrong and how to fix it. And he said, increase the blood flow to the neck area, suggest that increase the blood flow to the neck area and the throat area. Hmm. And so the hypnotist said that suggested to the entity Casey to increase it. There were a number of people that were in the room that said Casey's throat and got blood red. And then he woke him up. Casey spit up some blood and could then speak, which astounded everybody. Now, the hypnotist got the very interesting idea that, well, my God, if Edgar Casey can heal himself and diagnose a medical problem, I wonder if he can do it with other people. Right. And the first person he tried it with was on himself. The Ah. osteopath had a digestive problem that he could not cure. Casey went under hypnosis, gave him a suggested remedy. It worked almost immediately. And then they were off and running. This guy, the the hypnotist, started doing it routinely with Edgar. He started, the, the doctor started publicizing it a bit. It drew in many regional doctors to check it out. Eventually, a number of very important physicians came and tested Casey's ability. They were extremely impressed with it. Uh, And they wrote up a paper and they went to a medical conference and they presented this. And when they presented it, the New York Times happened to be there 
covering the medical conference and they published an article about an illiterate man becomes a doctor under hypnosis. (laughs) That's how it started. Suddenly the Casey family started getting bucket loads of mail coming in of people asking for health readings. And that is what they then called them health readings. So Casey was, became very well known because of this. He gave, uh, there are 14,000, some odd, it's just under 15,000 what are called documented readings. And that means every single thing Casey said under this hypnotic trance was written down. The fact that these were all written down has led researchers to go in and validate the accuracy of them. Lots of medical researchers have looked at Casey's medical readings. Now, in all of his medical readings, or health readings, as they're as they're typically known in the ARE, the health readings comprise roughly two thirds of all the readings that were done. So there's fourteen thousand some documented readings, and in all the medical journals that have that have studied this and published the results, they've come up with an accuracy rate between eighty five and eighty eight percent. Now that doesn't mean that the other ten to twelve percent or so, or fifteen percent, were wrong. They simply have no way of figuring out if he was right or wrong. On yeah, but that that still goes way, oh, way above chance. It's it is astounding. astounding. And I'm glad it took a very smart hypnotist and a very selfish osteopath to get this done. I wanted to throw in a tidbit uh, sure. real quick for you. And then I'll remind you where you left off. Because we're going back to Franz Mesmer. And just wanted to say out loud, Franz Mesmer was actually one of the people more responsible for the spiritualism movement. Back in the 1850s, um, uh, the, when but he didn't call his hypnotism uh, hypnotism. He referred to it as mesmerism, but he called it animal magnetism. That's yes. the way he referred it. Yeah. Because there were certain ways that you could put animals in trances by doing certain things. Crocodiles, like you said, you pet on their forehead where, where their you'd think their third eye would be and it, it calms them you know i mean they're yeah. so he called it animal magnetism but yeah out of hydesville new york and something called the burnt away district because the spiritualist people moved into the most evangelical part of new york state between rochester and buffalo and it was these two girls the fox sisters they oh yeah could they could communicate yep. with the spirit of a murdered peddler uh, because they would knock and and he would knock back to answer, you know, one knock for yes, two knocks for no. And and they did seances and all this stuff. But uh, Mesmer was one of the people, uh, I think Arthur Conan Doyle also, who back then were uh, big proponents of the spiritualism movement. Absolutely. Which uh, and a- actually a lot of the ancient alien stuff started from hypnosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, Helena from India to the planet Mars, which was a book written by a, uh, psychologist back in the 1800s. It was a woman who claimed that she was from the, had been taken to the planet Mars. She was hypnotized, uh, and it all came out under hypnosis. Very famous book. I actually had a copy of it at one time, uh, but I don't have it now, but there's loads of those uh, things that have come out under hypnosis that are exceedingly strange. And a lot of cases mm-hmm. were really strange, too. Uh, but, yeah, Mesmer, very interesting. I was trained in stage hypnosis uh, in my doctoral background. I no never kidding. really. Yeah, I never took any hypnosis uh, or clinical classes. I was trained 
in the area of psychopharmacology initially, and then I moved over into counseling and educational psychology. Uh, but for hypnosis, I took classes from a stage hypnotist no and learned kidding. all the, the stage wow. hypnotist techniques, which are kind of interesting. Uh, and See, it is. And, and hey, from, you know, as a hypnotherapist myself, uh, yeah. you know, and as a psychology guy myself. And you, back in the day when I was uh, um, into um, the, uh, what is it, the DSM, the Diagnostic yeah. Statistic Statistical Manual. Manual. Yeah. I was a psychopathology guy. You were an experimental guy yeah. back in the day. And, Back in the day, and and as somebody who's in both worlds, it's it's very cool to think that an experimental guy would catch on to stage hypnosis uh, first. Well, because yeah, to this I don't. Day, I haven't done any. <laughs> well, the stage hypno hypnosis. I, when I taught in college, I taught psychology classes in college later. Uh, and I actually used the stage hypnosis methods. Most of the students in Psych 1 and Psych 2, uh, where I taught, were nursing students, which they had to take in, in mm. to get their nursing degree. Uh, and so I used the stage hypnosis to show them that because I knew there were a lot of uh, dentists. Uh, at the time, many dental, uh, dental technicians were learning hypnosis, and they learned the stage techniques because they're fast. And it's incredibly fast. I had this technique I called the one-second hypnosis that was very oh, powerful. Shit. Very familiar with that one. Yeah. Okay. I did it in class. Uh, I'd have like 40 students in there, and I'd pick a couple. Uh, and that's the key. It's who you pick. Uh, and would just do, just do this. It took one second to put them under this deep trance. And it seemed, you know, it seems incredibly impressive. But if you know how to do it, it's, it's not really a trick. You're just doing something that you know is going to work. You're not tricking yeah. anyone. No, it, it, it is a certain trigger that very few people know about. And, right. and because you're in psychology and have an understanding of the subconscious, yeah. you know, and how to reach it, uh, there are shortcuts. And, and, you know, there are more than one method uh, oh, yeah. of that, that split-second thing. But it's also, I mean, you get to take revenge on dentists, which is awesome. <laughs> I love that. I've had some that were sadists and... You know, I will give them credit for one thing, though, because the form of uh, split-second hypnosis they used on me was something they called nitrous oxide in it right? oh. every single time. And, you know, I would really commend them on that particular method. <laughs> yeah, I, that's me, too. I always go to the nitrous. Um, absolutely. What's the uh, point of going to a dentist if you don't? <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I've actually told them, look, I'll just pay to come in and lay in the chair. Um, <laughs> but but they've never agreed to that. I, I will say that. None of them that I knew agreed. I know. See, they're no fun at parties. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the, the thing with Casey, Casey actually started using self-hypnosis then. he had They had a list of questions that were prepared for him. Uh, they were written down. His wife or a couple of other, there was a doctor by the name of E.B. House uh, who did a lot of it with him, uh, who was a family doctor. Uh, his wife did it, and there were a couple others. And, yeah, just I uh, wanted to say quickly, not, sure. the, same, not the same house uh, that's on TV. No, that, but his name was House. Doctor. His name was House, but not the same guy. <laughs> Absolutely, Doctor House. Uh, you know, I've never. I, that's never. We did a. We did a film about this and showed Casey uh, being questioned by this Doctor Thomas House, and it never occurred to me that the House on TV might be somehow 
linked to Edgar Casey, and so and I would wonder if maybe the director or the screenwriter or whoever chose why he chose that name House, uh, because mm. the only one I've ever heard of that was famous was Casey's doctor, uh, Thomas House. Anyway, Casey's Casey's readings were mainly about health, but in 1923 uh, it changed a bit, and the the idea of reincarnation popped out. And the idea of Atlantis popped out. And the idea of ancient history. A lot of ancient history came out. Uh, It's not the ancient history that was then currently accepted. For example, uh, when Casey first talked about people being in in the Americas, he said a large group of people came in in 50,000 B.C., He said another group came in in 10,000 B.C., and he said, but long before 50,000 B.C., uh, people had come in, mainly into South America. When Casey said that in the 1920s, the idea then accepted in mainstream archaeology is that there was no one in the Americas till about 3,000 years ago. So Casey's ideas were insane, and they were crazy. Nobody would have seen that as even possible. And, and then when Clovis was discovered, the idea was that, as far as mainstream archaeology was concerned, that there was nobody in the Americas before, say, 11,000 B.C. But it made Casey's 10,000 B.C. Look, date look good. But again, you, you go back to the 28,000, 50,000, and even a couple hundred thousand uh, years ago that Casey talked about. Now, we know that there were people here that came in in 10,000 B.C., 50,000 B.C., and long, long before that. And it all matches what Casey said in the 1920s, which was crazy. So yeah, those are, It is. It's insane how yeah. accurate that, that man is or was. Here. Well, yeah, still is. I mean, that, and it just, it, it really doesn't make, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense how he would just guess that. In fact, it is in no other uh, no other psychics that I know of have ever said that. Ones that they say that Casey read, and it's, for example, they say he read Blavatsky, uh, and he basically copied what Blavatsky said. But Casey's stuff is dramatically different from Blavatsky's and the others in mm-hmm. some aspects. One one other in example. S- several was aspects. Asked, Casey was more asked, accurate, too, than Blavatsky. Yeah. A lot more accurate. Well, he, no, was, asked, he was asked if there was life on the other planets. Were there animal, was there animal life like us on any of the other planets? Edgar Casey said no. no. That there was no life on the other planets in our solar system, animal life. Now, if you go back and you read all the other psychics and all the, like all the contactees and all the other people that have been around, you'll see that all the other psychics talked about people being on Mars and Venus, even Jupiter and Saturn. All those. Casey is the only one I've ever found who said no. Now, Casey did say that there are people like us all over the universe. There just there aren't any of them in our solar system. Yeah, Yeah. there's none in our solar system, but they're everywhere else. They're in other solar systems. He said he said the Pleiades and the Arcturian. uh, Arcturus was a yeah. Arcturus is a really big deal with with Casey. Uh, which is a, an interesting thing. Maybe we'll we'll get into that. But anyway, so Casey has these three areas of readings. One is like ancient history. One is what they call life readings, which relates to past lives. And the third are the health readings. 
And so around in the 1930s, an organization was started. It evolved into what today is called the ARE. It stands for the Association of Research and Enlightenment. That is a member organization in Virginia Beach, uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia. It's a very large organization with over 20,000 members. Uh, there is an old hospital building there that's been renovated that has a university in it called Atlantic University, and it also has a the gosh I can't remember the name of it, but it is a school of uh, massage and run by an MD. Uh, it's filled all the time, and then there is a large conference center there as part of the ARE. So there's the Edgar Casey Foundation, which is another organization that preserves all of the Casey readings and all of the medical products and the solutions that Casey gave for a variety of ailments. And there is a company called Bar, B-A-R-R, that actually produces and sells the Casey remedies and the devices that Casey uh, came up with. So all those organizations are in Virginia Beach there. Uh, they really look at three things. They do readings. They do things on health. They do things on people's spiritual life. And also there's a, a big focus on ancient mysteries. So that is the area. So they're all wait, they're all in Virginia Beach then. Well, yeah. you know, for the record, whenever I do the bio for you or we talk about your life, I have to consciously remind myself that it's the organization and not the foundation. Well, you know, the foundation, the, they're all interconnected. And I, I know they I, are. But do they get along, do you think, or is they cat fighting each other? I'd well, love to know that. It, let me put it this way. There is one board of trustees that uh, manages it. <laughs> and my wife is the chairperson of the board of trustees that manages all of them, but they all get along very, very well. Uh, wow. There is no fighting per se. Cool. Uh, and it's all managed by the same people. Uh, and it's a lot of sleeping over there. Probably not. Right. A lot of sleeping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> that's what made him great. You know, so I wonder. Uh, actually, his couch is still there. Uh, is it really? Wow. Yes. Have his couch. If you, they don't allow anyone to lay on. I have laid on it. Andrew Collins has laid on it. Really? Uh, and some people can, um, with special permission, lay on it. So if you guys get up there, uh, I will get you permission to lay on Edgar's couch. And it does matter which which direction you put your head. Edgar talked about aligning your head. Uh, one direction or another in order to do different things while you were uh, doing these hypnotic trances. Uh, I will say there's a famous British author uh, that it's, I'm not talking about Andrew Collins now, it's a colleague of his, who I picked up at the airport uh, to give a talk there at, the ancient at an ancient mysteries conference. And while he was there, there's a really neat uh, garden and pond area. It's beautiful. That's outside the main building. And, while he was there, he came in. He sat out there and meditated for all. He just wanted to sit alone and meditate. And he came in. Is this uh, Graham Hancock? No, not Graham. No. Um, you won't guess it, and I won't say anyway, but it wasn't okay. Graham one day. Right. But he came in, and he swore to us that Edgar Casey walked up to him and talked to him while he was there. Wow. And the guy then wrote a book uh, that included... Uh, some of that 
and it included a, a lot of stuff that Casey w- was quite interested in in readings. But you get these kind of stories all the time. And I tell a story uh, about things at the ARE. I've had, and I've put them in books, I've had numerous, very strange experiences there. Uh, you can call them coincidences, synchronicities, or whatever, uh, but they can be pretty profound. Uh, it's a really interesting place. If you ever get to Virginia Beach, it's free to go to. There's no cost. They'll they'll let you see the grounds, the building. Uh, people would be glad to talk to you. They have a free movie every day and a free tour every day, and there's always something going on that's free. So uh, it's just something I'd recommend. Oh, but, say, count us in. And and before we let you get back on topic, one one quick question out. It's completely outside of topic, but kind of on, because it deals with the Andrew. And Graham Hancock, too. And uh, maybe you, maybe not you. Because I saw this piece, I think it was like uh, in the, within the last couple of days, about psychic lensing. It's something that uh, they're talking about on on some of their events. And just wondering if you had anything to do with that or you're going to work no. with Because I know you guys I, are going to get working on new new material. I'm always working on new material. I stay away from the, um, um, it, it, I heard you say lensing, which you meant cleansing, right? I think it's lensing. I'll have to look it up. Oh. I'm, I'm not thinking well, so I'll, I'll there are There are, uh, they have conferences every month, usually two a month, very big ones they get. Uh, in general, the, the small conferences like training for hypnosis. There is a past life hypnosis training they have. Uh, and I think that's limited to 50 people. But some of the conferences, like Ancient Mysteries, gets like 400, 450 people that attends. They're a very big, very big conference center. Uh, there are some psychic ones that go on, some psychic training uh, of various kinds. Uh, that I looked different- it up. It's psychic questing. See, I was way off. Yeah, okay, psychic yeah. questing. That Andrew Collins developed that. Andrew yeah. was the original. Uh, he started psychic questing and actually coined the term back uh, in the early 1980s, and it began with what they called the green, the discovery of the green stone and the seventh sword. Mm-hmm. Uh, long involved story. Andrew has been doing this for a long time. He's done it a few times uh, with us. Uh, and it is, uh, it's really interesting. I will say that he is part of what we're doing now and what we're working on does involve some psychic questing in it. I am personally not doing it. Uh, I do my own thing and I do my own kinds of investigations. Uh, I think last time I was on, I had just been, I had just come back from being on the Navajo reservation for 10 days. Uh, which my wife and I have just been talking about. We're going to head back soon. We're also right. going to Kelly Hopkinsville to go to the exact site of the wow. the Kelly Hopkinsville fairies or goblin case, and also to uh, the place where Casey supposedly had his uh, most. He an angel visited Casey at age thirteen. Uh, long story, but anyway. So uh, very cool. Uh, yeah, I wondered if you you know inquiring minds had to know on that. Well, the ARE has these conferences all over the country every month they have study groups uh, my wife is very big into the study groups uh, i don't know how many there are now i w- it's under a thousand but there are a lot of study groups that meet around the country in in cities and towns all over uh, they have conferences in every state uh, they, they're called field conferences but the headquarters is in virginia beach and some of the biggest conferences are there i know they have a, in uh, pennsylvania 
where uh, at least one of you is. Uh, they have mm-hmm. them in New York. There's a New York Casey Center. Wow. Uh, and Texas has a big conference every year, as does Florida. Uh, there's about a dozen very big conferences around the country every year. And in China and Japan, uh, there is a very large contingent of uh, Edgar Casey people in China in the organization. Greg, yes. where's, where's the one in Pennsylvania at? Uh, well, they have them in Philadelphia and, and Pittsburgh, oh, yeah. uh, obviously, the, the places where you'd suspect. I don't know of any, and I know there's some groups in Harrisburg, okay. uh, but Philadelphia and Pittsburgh are where most of yeah, the cause, cause uh, Casey from the- events would take place. Yeah. If you get on the website, edgarcasey.org, go on the website, it will have an events pull down. There's a tab that says events. Uh, and sometimes it says headquarter conferences and events near you, and it's state by state, and it's what they have on the what's on the schedule right now. But the schedule constantly adds things to it. So that's all. That's on the Edgar Casey website. I recommend people to look at it. Uh, but they have loads and loads of conferences on different things. I get to me- I got to meet uh, Jacques Vallee at a UFO conference we held there. Yes. Wow. Yeah. I and remember I, you I picked, that. I personally picked Valley up at the airport <laughs> and it was at night and we went to, I never met him before, but a very tall man. I felt like a midget. Well, I guess you can't use that word. I felt like a oh. little person. Little, say very little, little. You can, you of all people could use that word. I know, but yeah, yeah, I can say little people. Yes. Um, but we went to a restaurant and we talked about an hour that night. And then the next day I had films of, uh, we were in the conference center, which it hadn't started that day. He was there a day early. And I was showing him films of all the old contactees in the 1950s. And he sat there utterly fascinated. And he told, I was surprised. He said, I have never seen any of these people talking about their experiences before. He had never seen any of the contactees. And I had all these old, these old films. Uh, but Valley did make it a point in the conference. I gave a couple talks. And, of course, I am a believer in the intelligent energy plasma theory, uh, partly as an explanation of UFOs and electromagnetic energy and geomagnetic geomagnetic anomalies and so on as part of it. But Valley made it a point to turn to me and say that uh, plasmas have nothing whatsoever to do with uh, UFOs. We, you know what? We, uh, I don't know if you knew this either. We uh, ended up subbing in for Michael Vera on uh, Late Night in the Midlands recently. And the guest was uh, this guy, Glenn Steckling, who worked for the, he really is the president still of the George Adamski oh, yeah. uh, Foundation. You okay. know? Really neat guy and said a few things that I really didn't expect him to say. <laughs> the first of which was he was adamant that Very any young. of these, conti- uh, you know, not just contactees, but his own personal experiences or his father's and George Adamski's personal experiences have all shown him that there is no malevolence out there. Yeah. You know, if they were here to take over the world, they would have done so by now. Right. It would have been easier, you know, <laughs> when they first came anyway than it is now because our technology is a little better, but they're much more advanced than us. He said the similar thing about plasma, too, because I asked him about but it's the fourth state of matter, you mm-hmm. know. So and it would make sense, at least to me, that plasma would have something to do with allowing us to propel faster or, or you know, um, the closer we can get to the speed of light, the faster we can get places. You know, it seemed well, like plasma true. would be 
you know, if you get excited particles involved, that that's, uh, just seems common sense. And he said no, just like uh, uh, Mr. Valley did. Well, so, plasma became a dirty word in ufology in the late 50s and the 60s when Philip Class came up. He had a book called UFOs Explained. And it was the plasma theory. And he had pictures of power lines that had little balls of light on them where a plasma spike had occurred or ball lightning. And that's the old idea of plasma. And anybody who was around in the 50s, the 60s, and actually the early 70s sees plasma as simply an electrical manifestation uh, that really means nothing. It's just a light, and people are mistaking those as UFOs. That's absurd. We know they're not that. Uh, that's the idea. But we don't. Our the the we still sound better than weather balloons, though. Well, <laughs> yeah. But the the modern the modern idea of plasma goes to quantum mechanics, which Andrew is very much into. Awesome. Yes, he is. And it and it goes to natural Earth energies, but it also tells us that these that the plasmas we're talking about are a life form of some kind and when i use the term life form i mean we're so used to physical you know flesh and blood and thinking mm -hmm. of that as being life uh, actually if you looked at a single microorganism say a bacteria we actually call the fluid plasma <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, and our blood is plasma because it's yeah. fluid, but there is, it is alive. The plasma we're talking about is energy based, but we are energy based too, mm -hmm. but it has an intelligence and that intelligence is so far beyond us that we cannot conceive of, of what it does. If in fact it's doing anything uh, intentional toward us it may just be living the way it lives i don't mm -hmm. know if if that may it just does what it does it's well, not thinking of harming us it's just being itself whatever that yeah. means and, and we most, interact with it we interact with its energies that's the idea yeah well i mean the most uh, common form that uh, everyday people would recognize is lightning Yes. Form of plasma because it's supercharged or super excited particles. Exactly. And but it's they a, act that's differently a, that's than non-excited particles. Yeah. It is a it is a it's the same sort of physics concept, but it's a slightly different thing of what we are talking about when like when Andrew and I are talking about a plasma now, we're talking about something oh, else. Like a bioplasma. Yeah. Fury. Okay. All right. Do you, they used to, do you ever see the fury? Boy, yes. I'm I'm going off topic, but you no, know, you're not. I'll, it's, I'll play my own this. Yeah, the bioplasmic universe was yep. basically the same thing as the Akashic record, according to that film. It was the record of all information that has ever been and will ever be. Yeah. So they really relabeled the Akashic record in that film with Kurt Douglas and Amy Irving. It was a very good film in the '70s, bioplasmic universe. But they were, but they were also referring to plasma because this was a film about a kid who was psychokinetic or yes. telekinetic. Yeah. And, and uh, the, these military people uh, kidnapped him and brought him in and turned him into a weapon. Yeah. And uh, so he was very, he was an unstable element in himself. I remember uh, that film now. 
Now yeah. You're yeah, I remember the film. It was a great film. People ought mm -hmm. to watch that. So, okay, so there is also the most unpopular theory of all time, and that is space critters, that the uh, UFOs are living organi organisms that live in the atmosphere. Uh, and they float around and do what they do. And they're invisible in the daytime because the light goes through them. At night, sometimes they will glow because they pick up some sort of energy uh, and the energy is visible at night. I'm not saying I believe in any of that. Uh, we are developing this plasma idea uh, a little deeper. The problem is we're stuck with the term plasma, which is a dirty word in UFOs gotcha. uh, in the whole field. People hate yeah. ufologists think you're dismissing everything, and we're not. Okay, uh, but yeah, I don't. No, I did it totally makes sense, especially after talking to uh, Glenn Steckling from the Adamski and yeah. asking him about plasma as you know for travel. And uh, yeah, it, and it, uh, it, it's not just him, but it's other people that we've talked to. Where plasma is this dirty word, but again, I have to remind folks because now it makes total sense to me that you're not talking about that same yeah. plasma. This is a, a different kind. A thing which often gets mistook for that. Yeah, for UFOs. Absolutely. Well, okay. space critters make sense, and it's certainly more romantic than space junk that glows. Well, exactly. Huh? Well, you know who came up with the space critters idea? This is surprising. <laughs> Kenneth Arnold. Really? Kenneth Arnold said they were living organisms. He thought about it for a long time. Wow. And Kenneth Arnold, it was a few years after his experience, Arnold called them space critters. He said, these are living organisms. That's what they are. That was the only thing he could think of that would explain them at the time. And the ironic thing is it matches some of the stories that you get from some of the astronauts that oh, were exactly. rotating around the moon. They describe these things in the very same way, almost like they had their own consciousness. That's yeah. I think that's what got Edgar Mitchell really concerned about consciousness as an energy form exactly. in the universe. Exactly. You know? Well, from someone who doesn't believe that all UFOs are nuts and bolts craft from other worlds. And I'll say that again. I don't believe that all UFOs are nuts and bolts craft from other worlds. Um, I don't necessarily believe in the space critters theory. I do have some belief in ancient aliens. Hello? I do. We have a guest I, I, call in. Okay. Yeah. A good caller. Hello. Hi, this is Dawn. Hi, Don. Welcome. Tell me, uh, I can. Sorry, you're in the background there. Okay, I muted it. Uh, well, at um, least it was me in the background. It sounded kind of good to me. <laughs> uh, you always sound good, Chip. Well, thank you, Don. <laughs> Appreciate that. How are you? Oh, not too bad. I, I found this very interesting when he was talking about the bio uh, plasma. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yeah, that's Greg Little, would, man. He's, he's, he's an interesting guy. Well, thank you for calling in. What's your question? Well, I have a friend who sees this. It looks like a little energy thing, almost like a energy centipede. And, you know, it's got this area, this, this one post in his garage that it goes up and down on. And it'll go down and disappear. And does it, go up is and it like white in color or black? Does it have a one particular? Yeah, it, it's like a, a white energy <laughs> sort of amoeba. It, it's 
you know, kind of yeah. centipede looking. It looks like it's got a bunch of... My, my wife you know, and I have seen these uh, those types of things in our house here. Uh-huh. Uh, would you, so it's not you weird. Would, <laughs> ha, has, it, has it been filmed or photographed? Uh, no. Okay. He, uh, not that I know of. I don't think he's gotten it yet. Um, and it started after his mom passed. Yeah, okay. Wow. Ooh, okay. Yeah, well. So, um, in fact, fir- Kim, you, you probably know him in here. That surfer. Oh, okay. yeah, I've heard it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's called in a couple times. He was in the chat, too, as well. Yeah. yeah. Wow, no kidding. Yeah, See, he's been seeing that, and I was really curious because it seemed to me to be exactly what Gregory is explaining, hmm. you know, a bioelectroplasma entity. Okay, yeah. well, can I just say you go, girl, and I'm, I'm going to turn it over to the magical Greg Little in a, in a moment, but because we've got one of those here, you know, my wife and I get the feeling, you know, uh, that sometimes they um, come around the time that we sense uh, the presence of our lost loved ones. They've come to visit, you know, my wife's ah. father, my mother. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes it almost seems more angelic in nature. I think of it, and I'm trying not to sound uh, bat crazy here, you know, but um, like a light being, no like like almost a small kind of light being, it feels almost angelic or divine. You know, there's like this energy me- that you messenger. feel when you're on. Yeah, yeah, and and it's extremely benevolent and love. I mean, you you can feel some sort of grace when you see these things. It's kind of unusual, but uh, yeah. but I I get it though. And I think it's fascinating, Don. And I got to boy, I got to congratulate you personally because I wouldn't have put two and two together like you just did. I think it could be something along the lines of what Greg is talking about. So I'm going to pass it over to Greg. And Greg, you got uh, something to add to that? What she's saying? Uh, I would. You know, I'm an investigator. I would. I would want to uh, try to film it, photograph it, interact it, interact with it if possible. I don't think there's anything to fear. I I really don't think there's anything oh, no. to fear. These things. Not at all. Uh, he doesn't feel. Yeah, but that is what I would do, and it's like Chip may be dead on with what he said. Uh, mm-hmm. It could it could very well be an energy manifestation uh, created by a loved one, and so right. that's what I would do. I would try to interact with it and take it a bit further. Uh, just don't go down the rabbit hole. I, I started. Yeah, so. I started oh, in so the. I've already been down the rabbit hole. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you had yeah. the good thing about going down is it probably or that you've been down. It means you got out. You're um, right. Well, yeah. yeah. Not easy climbing back out of that thing, though. I will say. That. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> synchronicities and coincidences that occur in life can lead us down a path, and the more you notice them the more you're going to notice them and they start appearing. Uh, And you might think that they're going to lead me to somewhere important and something to some conclusion, but often you just kept, you keep getting led further and further and further and notice, noticing it more and more. And that's the rabbit hole. Uh Uh, The end you have to determine what it means in the end is up to you, but it will lead you as far as you're willing to go. That's what yeah. I mean by that. Yeah. Uh, John Keel made a very uh, interesting statement about that. He said, once you notice this kind of stuff, 
and it notices you, mm-hmm. that's, it never stops. That's when when it notices that you notice. Doorway opens. Yep. Yes, you can. That's that's where you're in danger of going down the rabbit hole and following it too far. And you have yeah. to keep one foot. I started this whole thing by saying keep one <laughs> foot keep on the ground. Keep one foot outside the rabbit hole? As yeah, exactly. outside the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, keep yourself balanced. Because, it's, because it's okay Caesar, to look at the weird stuff. He's a research guy, you know. Yeah. We you like can to, look we into like this weird experiences. stuff. experiences. He wants to know why they're happening. And I think it's accidental, if I may say so, that my wife and I seem to put together the coincidence yeah. that these things appear uh, right around the time that our lost loved ones come to visit and in ways that we recognize. We call them affirmations, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't know about affirmations, but there are a lot of ways lost loved ones come to visit us, you know, there are certain smells that are kind of wafting around the room in small pockets that would remind you of only that person, you know. Your, your mother's perfume or your father's mm-hmm. pipe tobacco or, you know, something where you could only say, okay, that has to be mom or that has to be dad. Psychic sense. Yeah. That's and what I call them. Yes. And, uh, I yes. smell them. I have certain people I know who's around when I smell that. Mm-hmm. See, Don, we could hang. Yeah. We could <laughs> hang. Okay. Um, but I think that might just be a coincidence. Because I'm not, there's something about, because we get these things, we call them fireflies. And again, uh-huh. sounds a little crazy, but you know, it is what it is. Where it's is it like, like these little li- clear, sparkly, iridescent yeah. drops. Yes. yes. I call it, them fairies. Okay. All right. You know, and I, see, there you go again. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have gone there, but it could exactly, be, we call them fireflies because they look like actual fireflies. But, you know, at times uh-huh. when fireflies wouldn't be around, like the middle of winter. Right. <laughs> and you're not going to see them in the daytime in the light. Right, right. Yeah. And we also have orbs. And But because, you know, my wife and I have been in paranormal for like 40 years. Well, she grew up in a haunted house. These are not spirit orbs. There's a difference. You know, these are these are bigger sometimes. They're... They're bigger than the room, bigger than the house, you know, and sometimes they're that, but they're effervescent and they, they have the beautiful, cool white. And when they're near you, you actually, it changes the way you feel, you know, you feel this tremendous, uh, like peace, you know, the the level of which you don't anticipate feeling while you're alive, if that makes any sense, you know, yeah. so. And we're putting all these things together, um, and I think part of it is, you know, uh, because we're on the radio talking about these things, it's what Greg said, you know, they know what that we know. Um, <laughs> yes, they do. But we, we have seen them, and we also see these, they look like butterflies, except they look like that double helix uh, kind of thing for wings. So they've got upper wings and lower wings, kind oh, of like beautiful. Yeah. But we have those caterpillars too. That's is so cool, Dawn. I and call them plasmoid, but intelligent plasmoid. And I think we got to go to a break. Am I right with that? Yes. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> that was a quick yes. <laughs> I got one more question for you when y'all are ready. All right, oh, cool. Go ahead with it. Go ahead with it now, and then we'll go to break. Okay. Uh, Dan was wondering. If you've ever experienced having an actual cosmic ray hitting your, your op, the optic nerve in your rest, 
in your retina causing a flash of light? Mm. Oh, that's uh, an excellent question. Okay, I probably that's more for Greg than me. Yeah, I probably have. Uh, and the the way you can really tell, you have to be somewhere where it's utterly, totally, completely dark. And the other thing you want to do is go somewhere like in a cave. If you're in a cave and it's totally, completely dark and you lay there and you close your eyes, uh, and if you see flashes of light, those are cosmic rays hitting your retina. Uh, And the first time I ever read any details about that was in Andrew Collins' book called uh, The Cygnus Mystery. Uh, And he thought what Andrew wrote in that book, The Cygnus Mystery, was that he believed that one of the reasons caves, deep caves, like the kinds in Europe, where way, way down in them, they would do these beautiful uh, animal paintings. He said that uh, they became so sacred because even in the pitch black caves, the shaman would see these flashes of light. And the flashes Uh of light we know today are cosmic rays. They can penetrate that deep uh, and it's, that's very scientific, uh, mainstream stuff. Um, you, okay. it's not necessarily cosmic rays if you're in your house and you can see them, but you want to be somewhere where it's totally, completely dark. And the more shielded you are, the greater the odds are there'll be cosmic rays that are hitting your retina. If you see those little flashes of light. So that's but, my but shielded, well, the reason I, he wanted me to bring this up was, you know, some people will, will con- mistake that for a paranormal experience. Yeah, but they and, only last for, yeah, and in the daytime, you have cosmic rays hitting you all the time, too, but there's oh, light out there, yeah. and the light isn't noticed as much. The little flashes right. aren't noticed as much. It's like, uh, I've walked around Avebury in England in the daytime, never saw any flashes of light of, or orbs or glowing balls of light, but when we did it at night, we could see them. So the the thing is, are they there all the time, and we just can't see them in the daytime? And I think the answer to that is yes, they are popping out of the ground in the daytime too. It's just they are blotted out by what light is out there. You can't you can't really see mm-hmm. them. Yeah. But and in nighttime, right. they're more visible. Greg, I got to ask you. That, so when you you're know, in the forest, sometimes you can get a hint of them. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But I think, uh, and I should ask uh, to clarify your question too, Don, and mine too, with the uh, these cosmic rays. When you're in a cave uh, that's in total darkness. You're not surrounded by electricity. You know, when you're in your home and if you're in your living room in the dark, you know, you're surrounded yeah. by electricity. You've got the electricity yeah. on. you got 5Gs in the building. You've yep, you got electromagnetic fields all around you. Absolutely. All around. Yeah. yeah. So there's, and when you're deep down there. in the cave, those electromagnetic fields that are not natural... Well, you do have a natural magnetic field down there and a natural resonance, but that magnetic field isn't causing light to uh, light to hit your optic nerve. And we know that the cause disturbing your own magnetic field and rhythm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the light flashes that you'll see then, if you see them, they are cosmic rays hitting your eyes. Uh, And that it's a very well-known phenomenon within physics. uh, but the first time, like I say, the first time I read about it, Andrew's book, 2004, uh, and he speculated that that's why Shaman came to like being in caves so much, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that during, uh-huh. uh, when the earth was bathed in cosmic rays, uh, or well, we had gorgeous. a cosmic ray storm, there would be a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. I yeah. have thank another you question. very much. Hey, you guys have a wonderful day, week. Much love, all. Well, you've you've made our day better, and you go, girl. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for calling in.
Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Tim. You're welcome. Jim says thanks to you. All right. Hey, You're our welcome. shout out to him too. And you know. Uh keep us posted about that, that caterpillar thing, please. Yeah. Get a picture. Well, if you get a hold of Surfy and <laughs> get a get picture. Oh, right. I was at his mom's house. I don't know if he still got it. I just don't want people getting, you know, freaked out. All right. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get freaked out. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, I guess if it's actually like your mother's house and you go, Mom, there's a, there's a glowing orb of a caterpillar and it's just translucent crawling up and down out there all the time. That might freak Mom out if she's not uh, oh, inclined sure. yeah, into it, this. It, it definitely um, would have freaked mine out. Yeah, I, well, I remember my grandma telling me she used to see flashes of white light uh, enter and exit her bedroom when while she was in there. Eh. Well, I do. I thoroughly believe in this, the idea of these plasmoid mm -hmm. intelligences. And from our perspective, they're temporal. They don't. Well, we're temporal, too. It's just mm -hmm. we, we live longer. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think they pop in and out of existence. I think they're still existing when we can't see them. Mm -hmm. It's just they're in a different vibrational field, mm -hmm. uh, and they're not within the visible light spectrum. And that's all yeah. about vibration. And mm -hmm. But it's mainstream science. That stuff yeah. is mainstream science. It just is weird science. That's yeah. where you, we're really getting into the realm of the weird, which probably is the supernatural. Yeah. Probably is science that we just haven't figured out yet. That's what I believe. Greg, I got a yeah. question, too, before we go on break. What would cause somebody to see... Um, light beings or people dressed in white standing outside their home in the yard like they were partying or having a get-together of some sort. My grandfather used to see that uh, often, and he would tell me about, about that. And he goes, don't you see them? He'd get real abdomen about it. And he's like, can't you see these people outside dressed in white? I said, Pap, I can't see any, anything. What, How what do you old think was he? He was um, probably in his mid-70s. This was like right. four or five years before he passed away. Any mental conditions, or I'm just—I mean, that's what I got to ask. Not Kurt, that I know of. He's perfectly you know of. fine upstairs. Yeah. I mean, he, I'm going to go on because I—I've been around people that seen these things. I've seen things was, like he this. He was all—he was I, all together. I think there. it goes back to what Greg just said about frequency, mm -hmm. uh, energy, vibration, uh, dimension. In in some cases, of course, that whole dimension, interdimensional thing. That's when you start flirting with the standard model. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, vibration, frequency. His it's eyes like are tuned. Yeah, his eyes are tuned to see him. Ours aren't. Yeah. yeah my, my, my angels. It sounds like he's seeing angels yeah. two years before he died. It's almost yeah. like, you know, the angels are appearing. And it's very, I've had that in my family where family members that were before they died saw loved ones, saw angels. Um, I have a story that I'll tell about myself. Maybe uh, when maybe. we get back, maybe <laughs> I can't. I, I may <laughs> after the break. I may chicken out and decide I'm not going to tell this one. But uh, it's a very common experience, and in mainstream psychology, they say, "Oh, it's caused by stress, and it, it's a psychological reaction." You know, you're looking for help, or you're looking for solace, or something, and so you have this. Vi your mind creates a visionary mm -hmm. experience. Uh, that's the mainstream. Is that the truth? Um, you know, personally, I don't think it is. And the reason I don't think it is is because I'm convinced from Native American experiences mm -hmm. and what shamans do, 
that it's not something that we are creating from our mind. It is something that we are bringing bringing into our visible uh, spectrum, spectrum mm-hmm. and we are interacting with it. And mm-hmm. it doesn't stay permanent like we are. We're permanently in this spectrum, at least until we die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I've got so- friends that are shaman. They say the same thing. It's like, why can some people talk to the dead at will and others can't? Their they're, frequency, it's it's a different frequency. Yep. Yeah, they have to raise their vibration. Yeah. The dead have to lower theirs, and somewhere in the middle you meet. There you is. People just don't understand. The rods and cones that are in our retina, the back of the eye, the rods and cones are tuned. They are like an antenna. Mm-hmm. And that and to each one is an antenna, and that antenna is designed to pick up a specific frequency. When it picks up that frequency, it sends a signal back to the back of the brain, which is where the visual cortex is, and that's where you're actually seeing. But that tuning, for example, owls can see infrared. We can't see in. They are tuned to infrared. They can see animals running around at night because they can see their heat signature. Well, there's also ultraviolet, and there's other areas in this uh, electromagnetic wavelength, Mm -hmm. and we simply can't see them. So the idea is very simple. We all don't have the exact same tuning in uh, in our rods and cones. Some people have the tuning to where they can see a little bit of infrared, maybe a bit of ultraviolet. So the, they will see things in this world we don't see normally. Mm-hmm. There, there is a history. Maybe we can change that through mm-hmm. certain rituals, too, yeah. and practices. Yeah, in my county, also, there's a history of Native Americans. The Seneca, America, uh, Seneca Indians were here at one mm-hmm. point. In oh, Thomas. yeah. Everywhere you go in the U.S., there's yeah. a history of... Yeah, there's even yeah, a school but, district named after them, Seneca Valley. Yeah. So, but it's also, I mean, even collective consciousness belief is, is a part of the area long before we become yeah. a part of the area. So, I mean, there are things that go back. How many paranormal cases that nobody figured out went back to the 1500s, the 1400s right. uh, Native American tribal uh, beliefs and that collective consciousness energy? of these uh, wolves or these wolf-like beings or cryptozoological things, you know, that people bump into, especially in the Southwest and on a paranormal excursion, you know, or curses that have been placed on the land uh, for people that have acted against the community that lived there that really still exist in this day and time that nobody would even think about because it goes so far back, it seems inconceivable. But if it's there, it's there, you know. Well, that's that's interesting. You know, the, there was a chief named Cornstalk who put mm-hmm. a curse on the people around Point Pleasant, West Virginia, when he was mm-hmm. murdered. Right. Uh, and, of course, that is that where That came the, up with the Mothman. Uh, yes, exactly. And I've been to the site. There's a Cornstalk uh, monument, and uh, the place where he was shot is still there. There's a painting in it, which is really very vivid about them breaking in and murdering him and his son and a couple of other people. Uh, so the, the idea of curses, uh, you know, is there something to it? Personally, I think there might, there might very well be. And I, so I always say might, cause I can't necessarily prove that scientifically. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay yeah, but with there's, believing there's, uh, and not having to prove. <laughs> our friend uh, Krista Chesre, the C2D1 haunting at Geneseo College. You know, this kid was a track star, and he was he was absolutely tortured, figuratively speaking, anyway, by this malevolent entity. It's one of the most classic paranormal cases that we have. It's called the C2D1 haunting, and it traces back to this thing called the torture tree. Which, again, was when Washington, this was back to the American Revolution, and he was um, ordering his troops to uh, separate the Native Americans from their land uh, so they could take the land, you know. And there was some uh, some really kind of soulless stuff that went on. And it brought about a very similar thing, the curse from the Native Americans on anyone who walked this land ever again if it wasn't going to be them. And this had a lot to do, at least allegedly, with uh, what really triggered this haunting of this really beautiful, remarkable man. We need to go on break, Chip. I know, man. Uh, Yeah. And uh, I know you'll be back, but during the break, I'll be back. Okay. You're listening to Supernatural Realm with our special guest, Gregory L. Little. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to WCT.FM, talk radio like no other. God, I love the station. Island Merchandise is finally here. We have a large selection of shirts, hats, wall clocks, phone cases, stickers, jewelry, and much more. It's been a long time coming, but it's worth the wait. With great prices and quality products from Calf Press. Just go to LateNightInTheMidlands.com and click the big blue banner at the top of every page. Every purchase helps keep LNM Radio on the air, so stock up and tell the world you're a late nighter. So again, go to www.LateNightInTheMidlands.com and click the big blue banner at the top. Mondays from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Kindness Beyond the Veil, even in the darkest realms and mysteries, good things happen. Kind, even loving things. In the paranormal, psychic world, extraterrestrials, mystical healing, light workers, starseeds, things that have astounded us since the beginning of time, do have a Monday side to them. And we'll show you on Kindness Beyond the Veil, every Monday, 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern, with your host, Chip Reichenthal. Leading into Michael Barra's Late Night in the Midlands show at 9 Eastern, making Mondays worthy of looking forward to right here on WCETFM, because that's where the action is. It must be a tumor That's making you say the things you say Schumer It must be a tumor Making you say the same things they say And when you lie Which is every day just call it what it is. Humor, it must be a tumor that's making you say the things you say. Humor, 
head must be a tumor Making you say the same things they say And when you lie Which is every day I must call it what it is Talk Radio, you'll love the new Paranormal Radio app from Talk Stream Live. You'll find a great selection of talk shows covering UFOs, ghosts, strange phenomena, and much more. Download the Paranormal Radio app now and start listening to the very best in Paranormal Talk Entertainment, including the network you're listening to right now. The Paranormal Radio app, free in Google Play and the iOS App Store. WCT.FM, your talk station. L&M Merchandise is finally here. We have a large selection of shirts, hats, wall clocks, phone cases, stickers, jewelry, and much more. It's been a long time coming, but it's worth the wait. With great prices and quality products from Calf Press. Just go to LateNightInTheMidlands.com and click the big blue banner at the top of every page. Every purchase helps keep LNM Radio on the air, so stock up and tell the world you're a late nighter. So again, go to www. Welcome back to the Supernatural Realm on WCET. What? Uh, <laughs> I didn't know what that was, but somehow I got Grandma got run over by reindeer on that. Uh, but triple uh, com is our website. We're talking with uh, Gregory L. Little. Chippy, you there, buddy? Chippy. Chip. Well, I'm here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ch 
Chip, Chip may be uh, gone a bit. Who knows? Yeah, he may be disposed of. But, yeah, he uh, may be looking for one of those little creatures out uh, somewhere, <laughs> too, that he was talking about. That's very possible. Yeah. Could be one of those light beings that he's seen. Right, also. right. Well, shall we go back to what we were talking about? Yeah, sure. We'll go back okay. to that. Well, actually, what where where we were was the it was kind of building up to this thing about ancient history, mm-hmm. and uh, Casey Casey wrote about uh, he didn't write about it. Casey readings uh, where everything he said was written down uh, detailed this history of the ancient world, and of course Atlantis popped up, and in Casey's ideology and all this, Atlantis he said started around two hundred thousand years ago. And, of course, the story of Atlantis that most people know from Plato, uh, Plato's Atlantis had no beginning. It only had an ending. And the ending was around 10,000 B.C. or so, 9600 B.C., according to Plato. Uh, But he never talked about how it began. Uh, Plato never gave many details. He just talked about the ending. But Casey said it began around 200,000 years ago. It was an island empire that stretched from the Straits of Gibraltar or the Pillars of Hercules, according to the ancient Greeks, all the way across into the Caribbean, including the islands of the Caribbean, an island empire. And it extended into what was then called the British West Indies, which is where Belize is today, Belize and some of the part of the Maya lands. Uh, so that was Casey's story in his whole history of Atlantis. He talked about the ending. Eventually he got to the ending. He said that, that Atlantis went through three stages of destructions. Uh, the first big one occurred in 50,000 BC. The second one, 28,000 BC and the final one in 10,000 BC and that people migrated from Atlantis to South America and North America and also to Europe, particularly where the Basque populations are. Uh, he, he mentioned that quite a bit. There's the idea that the Basque were Atlanteans. Some went to Egypt and actually started the Egyptian civilization. Uh, and some of them went to the Gobi Desert and so on. But mainly they went to North America and South America. And before it was destroyed in 10,000 BC, Casey stated that there was uh, a plan that was made. And the way the plan, where the plan came from is really interesting because it came from communications from the outer worlds. Uh, And it sounds exactly like aliens, that the priests of Atlantis got messages from these aliens that the world... Uh, that they that they knew it as they knew it to be was going to be destroyed through a cataclysm and that they needed to preserve the records of Atlantis. And this is where the idea of the Hall of Records comes from. Casey said there were three identical record halls that were made. One is in Egypt under the right paw of the Sphinx. Uh, And that's really what everybody's been looking for. They're looking for the Hall of Records under the Sphinx. And the second one, he said, was in the Yucatan, which has been pretty much identified as being at a site in Guatemala called Piedras Negras. Uh, And the third one, he said that the temple was 
in the Bahamas near what was is called Bimini, the small island of Bimini. Mm-hmm. Casey said that in 1968 and 69, a portion of Atlantis would rise again in the Bahamas near Bimini. And he said that this temple of Atlantis, which he called the Temple of the Poseidians, had gone underwater. And those have become really the focal points of ARE's research and actually zillions of documentaries made about this. People looking for Atlantis. It started in the 60s. Uh, The first thing that was found was in 1968. Uh, A a Two pilots actually found the first things, and it was what became known as a Mayan temple in shallow water off of an island known as Andros, A-N-D-R-O-S, which is the largest of the Bahama Islands. Very remote, very difficult to get to, very difficult to search. Uh, And the south end of this island, it's 130 miles long, um, Andros Island is, and in the south end, These same pilots who saw this underwater formation that looked like a temple, they saw what looked like a triple ring of standing stones in shallow water. And they took photographs of both. So then subsequently, uh, in 1968, uh, a a marine biologist uh, by the name of Dmitry Rebikov uh, along with a Miami biologist by the name of J. Manson Valentine. Valentine, by the way, is involved in a lot of UFO stuff. That is another whole story. Be really interesting to someday tie all that together. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're going to make a note of that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> I better be careful about this. I don't have time to talk about all these people. Yeah. Um, they went and they they found the what they called the temple. Now, we have been to that site. It is not a temple. I hate to say that. They saw that there were these little stones at the bottom and sticks sticking up out. And what those are, uh, God, I hate to say it, but they're sponge pens. Now, a sponge it sounds like you got sponge herders down there. You know, like they're rounding up the sponge and they're putting them in these pens. Well, what they do, sponge collectors or sponge divers will, will get these sponge off of, the, off of rocks mainly, uh, and coral reefs, and they will pick them, and then they put them in these pens that are made out of sticks where a lot of water can go through them, and, and it's they do it to help clean out the interior of the sponge. After they die, they want them to clean out. So they put them in these pens to help them clean out, and they stay in there for about a year, and then they take these sponge, we've seen this, they take the sponge on land, and they just beat the heck out of them. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, that's what they do. Sounds uh, like anyway. something. Like that. Yes, hey, so you, that was that was the Mayan temple. They also saw this E-shaped formation they couldn't find. It looked like the cursive letter E that was underwater. Very distinctive. We've been to that. We filmed it from the air. And it looks like the letter E. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so in, in 2001... Uh, I was reminded of these finds by reading a book by Charles Berlitz and coming to know Andrew Collins. Andrew had written a book uh, about Atlantis called Gateway to Atlantis, which uh, had pictures of those in it. And he talked about Andros. And and we knew that efforts had been made to find these structures before, but nobody could find them. They tried and tried. Uh, One group spent $30,000 trying to find just this uh, triple ring of standing stones which was supposed to be in shallow water in southern Andros, but they Hmm. couldn't find it. 
And for some reason, I re- I vividly recall at that conference saying, well, I'm going to find it. I went to my wife and said, let's go do this. It's something we can do. And I had no idea at the time, the logistics, uh, I, I just didn't realize uh, how extensive this was going to become. Uh, but we decided to try and find out where the circle was first. And I actually found one of the pilots who took the photo back in 1968. And, and we interviewed him and I asked him, other people have tried to find it. Why haven't they been able to find it? And he said, I didn't know that. And I said, <laughs> well, what have you told people? He said, nobody's ever asked me anything. Wow. Nobody <laughs> ever went to him and asked him. And I said, do you know where it is? And he said, well, yeah. He walked in and came, he lived in Florida. He walked in, came out in the back, laid out his pilot's map, the air map. And he said, it's right here, right in this area, right here. He pointed to it and easy. At that time, I was actively flying. I was still wow. flying planes actively Jeez. myself. Wow. So you're Flying also, right? See, it's cool yeah, enough I that you're right this. Isn't it? My wife would have said, you can't even find the next town over. How are you going to find anything having to do with Atlanta? You know. So, well, cool. okay, so were you when able I, to find it then? First, sorry? Were you able to find that location? I could find it. Yes, I'll tell, the, I'll tell the story. I was going to tell Chip a quick one. That when I took my, when I was getting my pilot's license, I took the cross-country flight. Uh, I got, I didn't get lost. I couldn't find an airport. I was flying in this little <laughs> town in Arkansas and I couldn't find the airport and I circled and circled and circled. And I finally had the interstate 40 goes out there. I had to fly real low, about a hundred feet off the ground, Ooh. off the, up the interstate and read the damn interstate signs to be able to <laughs> oh fly out wrong town. I see, had to go before you even got your license, you could have been a crop duster already. See? Oh, of course, true. I'm admitting that something it's illegal. <laughs> it's the statute of we won't tell a soul. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right. But anyway, all right. So we got this. This formation in Southern Andros is in Cuban airspace. Oh. And I wanted to get a multi-engine plane, a high-wing plane. That was that could fly really low and really slow, so we could do film. And I searched around, and I eventually found this charter aircraft. And the guy that owned it got fascinated with the story, and he said, "I don't care if it is Cuban airspace; well, I'll fly you down there." So we flew down. We found numerous circles. We found the one that looks like standing stones. We found the E-shaped form. We filmed the what what are called the temple site. Uh, nice big rectangular structures in shallow water off Andros. Uh, then we went to Eastern Andros and stayed. And, and it's, it's very difficult to get to the west side of the island. Eventually, we paid a sponge diver a great deal of money to cut us through the island. He cut through what are called a bight, spelled B-I-G-H-T, which is actually a tidal flow that goes all the way through the island, and you can only go at high tide. So we went to it. Uh, we discovered the, the circle of stones, which was uh, had a diameter of 250 feet, turned out not to be stones, and you couldn't tell it until you walked right up to them. They're in very shallow water. It's about three miles offshore, and you can stand in water that's about two to five feet deep. And when it's stones, what were they? For sponge. Really? They look just like giant sponge where the sponge divers had never been. It made the guy that that took us there very excited. 
He said he'd never seen sponge <laughs> that big, and he said he was coming back because we saw spon- other sponge formations there, and he said, this is like a gold mine over here of sponge because oh, sure. nobody ever went over there to do it. It's just too dangerous to go there. Uh, but that's where it all started, and I thought we were done. We looked at the E-shaped formation, and it was supposed to be it was supposed to be some sort of a man-made formation, but it wasn't. It was just a strange growth of turtle grass hmm. on a coral reef, on a hump in the, in the in the water. So we were done. But then this guy came to us the night before we were supposed to leave and told us about a formation off of the uh, northeastern coast of Andros. And he said it looked a lot like the Bimini Road. Now, we had avoided this Bimini area because I believed what the mainstream scientists and skeptics said about it, that it's completely a natural formation. So I didn't even want to go to the Bimini Road and look at that. We hadn't even been to Bimini. So I did snorkel out the day that we were leaving. And, oh, my God, we found this massive stone formation, very clearly man-made under underwater, not reported anywhere, huge blocks of stone. We got back. Uh, I had taken a few pictures while I was out there. I sent them to some geologists and marine biologists. They got very excited and said, this is really interesting. Hmm. We went back and then filmed it and measured it and uh, hired a local to take us out, started scuba diving it quite a lot. And then we started issuing articles about it starting around 2003. And it got a lot of attention, a lot of news from many universities around the world, for that matter. Uh, and it was named the, Andro, the Andros Platform. It has a lot of uh, human markings on it. It's a very large formation that we, d- we finally decided this has got to be a breakwater forming a harbor. So it's like a harbor enclosure. Uh, that that is what it is. That then made us go look at the Bimini Road, and then we discovered oh, everything the skeptics had said about the Bimini Road, all of it, lies. Wow, unbelievable! And they had written it up over and over. But in their original articles that they did not make available to people, the scientific articles, one in a journal called Sea Frontiers, they wouldn't send me a copy of the original Sea Frontiers article where they claimed that they had done all this work on the Bimini Road, proving that it was completely natural. Uh, My wife and I wound up having to go to Florida State University. There aren't many universities that even have those old articles from Sea Frontiers. Uh, It's no longer in print, but they wouldn't send a copy. This is the U.S. Geological Survey, by the way, a guy that worked for them. Um, And we saw that everything he'd been saying and quoted over and over and things he had written in the magazine, Skeptical Inquirer, absolute, straightforward lies. I then engaged with the scientist who wrote the article and who had been basically misleading people for decades. I wrote him. We had this long exchange of emails. And he finally said, oh, look, I, I'm, I'm imprecise. I should have uh, uh, been a little more precise. And then he finally said, look, we just did this for fun. We didn't do any scientific scrutiny at all. It was all for fun, just for fun. Just for and fun. He, Yeah, and I poked fun at people. His articles would talk about all the nude people down there looking for (laughs) a planet. 
And I never see any of them. Hey, uh, uh, can, I, can I ask you a couple of questions? And because we were we started off with Edgar Casey, they yeah. might have some sort of Edgar Casey reference. Maybe, maybe not. First, okay. the wider question. I may have asked you this. I don't even know if you can answer it or not. But you were mentioning Plato and yeah. his first mention of Atlantis. And he referred to it as a fictional place to everybody that knew him. This was like 380 B.C. And from 380 B.C. to the 1800s, it was a fictional place. And all of a sudden, in the mid-1800s, 1850s or so, a couple of authors came out with Atlantis being real and yeah. tracing it back to an old Egyptian legend that they had alleged uh, Plato utilized to make up this fictional place that was the only thing that could rival Athens as military power. Right. Okay. It was this perfect society. So all these years fictional. That's okay. is it, well, is okay. it Casey too? Well, I know Casey wasn't around in eighteen fifties, no. but well, why, it, and then why Bahamas? Because we always as kids thought if it was real, it was in the Mediterranean somewhere. Well, okay, look, the, the Timaeus and the Critias are the two writings of Plato's that talk about Atlantis. Mm -hmm. The first story of Atlantis starts out by saying this is not a fictional tale. If you go and you actually read it, it says this is an absolutely true tale, and I am telling it word for word as it was told to me. Now, the story came from Dropides to Salon to Plato— uh, supposedly, uh, there is the temple of Sais, where I believe it was Dropides went and saw it written on the pillars there, and the Atlant and the priests of Egypt supposedly confirmed that it was true. But Plato's stories, his actual writings, say the story is valid and really true. He said it is accurate. And he said it took place 9,000 years before the story was originally told, which was in 600 BC. That's where the 9600 BC date comes. Now, scholars have debated for years, and most scholars decided that, oh, it's a fictional tale to try and uh, help the Athenians be more moral in their government. That's, oh, what, that's why they say it was a fictional Well, that makes, Plato, <laughs> that makes sense. Plato himself said it is a real story, but of course that scoffed at. Uh, and But if you actually read it, it'll tell you over and over, this is an absolute real story. Plato does give the beginning of it, but he doesn't give a date. He says that it was started by Poseidon, one of the gods, mm -hmm. and Poseidon made this center city on a large island. He mm -hmm. married this woman called Cleto. Mm -hmm. uh, they had ten. They had twins, five pairs of twins, and they divided the world up into ten areas. Atlas was one. The yep. Atlas ma Mountains were named after him. But it all goes back to that old Greek mythology. <coughs> Excuse me. So, but Plato said it was a true story. Now, scholar, some scholars. Uh, have said that they believe it's probably a true story based on on something that happened. Uh, and most of the scholars today, even who say, oh, it's made up, they say, oh, he was inspired by the eruption of Santorini or Thera, the island, the uh, eruption there that occurred. Uh, whether that's true or not, I, I, I don't believe that, uh, that, that it was Santorini. But Plato said it was real. He said it was outside of the pillars of Hercules in the true ocean, 
which is the Atlantic Ocean, and that he said if you hop from island to island, you will reach the opposite continent. And then a U.S. Uh, US House of Representatives guy by the name of Ignatius Donnelly started reading all of Plato or all of Plato's works and mm-hmm. other archaeological works in the uh, Congressional Library. Mm-hmm. And he put together the book, uh, two books about Atlantis. And yeah, then in the 1800s, it got very, very popular. Uh, Donnelly believed that Central America was probably the basis of Plato's Atlantis. That's what he believed. Casey, on the other hand, said that the the Caribbean islands were a main part of it. Casey never said where the main island was. He did talk about the center city some, but he never said where the main island was. He said there were that it broke, that eventually it came to be five main islands, and most of those broke up and sank and became a lot of smaller islands. So Andrew Collins actually believed Cuba was the main island. Uh, Cuba does... Cuba's dimensions do, in fact, fit what Plato said. Plato gave dimensions of the island, and he said the center city, which was what everybody's looking for, that's why they chose Santorini, because it has a big hole in the middle, a big circle. And they Mm -hmm. said, ah, that big circle must be Plato's center city. Mm -hmm. But it's not on an island that's 600 miles long and a couple hundred miles wide, uh, whereas Cuba is. And Cuba fits it to a T, and it it has this... Uh, mountain range it has two growing seasons and it does have this center a center configuration that is called zapata uh which is where we believe that's where we've been trying to go for years and every now and then we think oh my god we're going to be able to go when obama uh changed the restrictions on cuba we immediately started contacting people uh, and there were people that, that told us, yes, you can come to Cuba now, but they said over and over, we can't take you there. We can't take you to that particular place. Uh, it is off limits. Uh, and it appeared that no matter what we offered or how much money we offered, none of them would, was willing to take us there. And then, of course, the restrictions were put back in place, and now you can't go back even for this kind of thing. So we're still waiting. We want to go to this one area. But the but the net effect of all the research that we did, we spent, my wife and I spent 25 weeks in the Bahamas. And in those 25 weeks, we were on boats. We searched using numerous side scan sonars. We had underwater video that we watched pretty much all the time. Uh, we used remote underwater video, which meant we could see all kinds of things in, in deep water. Uh, the ARE itself had has funded a whole bunch of research at, at depths of 300 feet. Wow. Now, the problem is this. In 10,000 B.C., which was when both Casey and Plato said Atlantis was destroyed, the 10,000 B shoreline is at about 110 feet. The sea levels were that much uh, shallower in 10,000 B.C. because the Ice Age, though it was waning and almost over, there was still a lot more ice and the seas mm. have come up that much. But at 110 feet, about five miles off of Bimini, there is this formation of roughly 30 to 40 rectangular structures right on the 10,000 BC shoreline that are in three distinctive rows, unispaced. And we have dove those with the History Channel. 
Mm-hmm. We got a lot of really good film of them. And what they all look like are rectangular buildings about 10 by 20 feet. You can see the 10,000 B.C. shoreline there. It falls off rather precipitously where these buildings are, what look like building structures. There, along the edges of these square and rectangular structures are what look like building blocks that have been totally covered over with coral. Uh, so the coral, and you can't dig through coral. You can't cut through coral. It is illegal in the Bahamas to do that. So that's styminess. In between these, you see these square and rectangular structures that look just like buildings. And in between them is pure white sand. And then you'll go up like 50, 60 feet and you've got another building. And, uh, and 50, 60 feet of pure white sand. And then you've got this other building. And on and on it goes. And a lot of them have what look like... They look like the walls on the exterior, the roof fell in, and sand filled up on the inside. Hmm. And so these are there. Uh, there will be an episode of the Josh Gates's uh, Expedition Unknown that's coming up in this new season where an archaeologist by the name of Bill Donato is going to go with him there. Hmm. Uh, long involved story in that. We did not want to go on that, didn't want to go on that show. I don't like going on TV shows anymore. <laughs> not a long story but anyway uh, that is one of the things that were found we we found numerous layers of stones at the bimini road it was very clearly a harbor we were the first to identify ancient anchors they look like phoenician anchors that are strewn all over the place uh, around bimini there's a place at Sal that looks identical identical Sal is only 20 miles from cuba uh, very difficult to get to. We did go there uh, with uh, NBC, actually. Oh. Uh, we did a two-hour show with NBC by going to KSAL. Uh, and it, an incredible formation there. But the main thing, we did find another building structure. And I'm just remembering all these things. There's like 30, 30 major things we found. Uh, the last thing we found was what looks like a, collab tem- a collapsed temple made out of, of polished schist which schist stone, it's a, it's a type of purple, it almost glows when the sun hits it. It's a, a purple uh, sort of color, blue schist. Uh, <laughs> it also woke up our friends at the FCC there. S-T-H-I-S-T. The Greek temples were made of schist, and then they often covered them in a type of concrete. Uh, to smooth them out. But the all the group temples, the Oracle of Delphi, was made out of schist. Uh, it's a beautiful rock that polishes really, really nice. Yeah, my uh, wife but, says I'm full of that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> you're full of schist. <laughs> full of schist, yes. <laughs> well, you'd be stoned if you were. <laughs> uh, probably, and purple, too. Yeah. So there's, there's so many things that we found. Uh, and it and after we found that we dutifully reported it to the authorities uh and some other things were going on in the bahamas at the time and mainly there were people that were uh looking for gold in the old spanish galleons and an american group apparently found some and went back to the states without reporting it so the Bahamas pulled all geological and archaeological permits, and they had them pulled for about three years, and they rewrote all the laws for archaeology and geology, and they made it restrictive. 
Now, we can go back on a film permit. That is the only thing that we can do. Mm-hmm. They also made this site where we found what looks like a temple, uh, a restricted site. They have made it off limits. And there's actually been a salvage claim made on that site by a uh, person associated with the Microsoft Foundation that does archaeological work. And when they contacted me about it, at first they were interested in pulling this up and restoring and rebuilding it. Uh, so that is where it stands now. That is the end of that. All that research. We, I really want to go to Cuba. That is our main thing. It's in a, like I said, a really remote area. Uh, Andrew is on standby with us because we're going to take him along with us when we go, um, and we'll see. But what that's that, the. That's, what is that being planned, Greg? Ah, uh, well, well, they have to get permission first. <laughs> We just have to be able to go, and yeah. we have to be able to get in this area. Andrew, of course, British citizens can go to Cuba. Andrew can go, oh. but Andrew can get to this area where we need to go. Okay. Uh, it's not too far from the Bay of Pigs, and we've been told that this whole area where it is is restricted, mm-hmm. and it may be restricted because of the military. You know, a few years ago, you heard. do you remember when all this came out about an underwater temple that was in deep water off mm-hmm. of Cuba? Mm-hmm. All right. Reason they found that they were doing side scan sonar and they were actually looking for Spanish galleons for the Cuban government. That's what can you, the can, you, can you blame them? You know, I mean, well, that's that's Zol- treasure. Paulina Zelitsky, um, a, a Russian um, old marine engineer, was doing the research. And what drew their attention to that area was initially they saw a massive submarine on the bottom. They were doing the size of this. So they saw the submarine land. And it took them a while to turn the boat. You know, these giant boat can't turn on a dime. Sometimes they take a couple miles to turn. By the time they turned back and went over the site, that submarine was gone. It took off. It picked them up and it knew that it located them and it took off. Uh, and then they went to an area they hadn't seen in this turn, and that is when they discovered all these things on the bottom. Now, the Russians are all over down there. There are We've seen Russian warships in the Caribbean. People don't know this. There's a lot of them in the Caribbean. Mm. Uh, and the U.S., hey, up and down the eastern side of Andros Island, there are seven. There's only three of them active now, but there are seven U.S. Navy bases called AUTEC, A-U-T-E-C. Uh, it's the Atlantic Underwater Testing and Evaluation Center. Uh, they have helicopters there. We went into an autic site at night accidentally on a boat, and Oopsie. there was a stealth. I don't know if it was a um, missile destroyer or what, but there was a stealth ship in there, and we were confronted by uh, guys carrying machine guns, cursing oh. and yelling at us to oh, get tell you what they told us uh but there were a couple of us on this boat uh and it was just pitch black and for some reason the lights were not on the um oh there was a way to get through the reef and the and the lights that were supposed to be on it weren't on so we wound up accidentally going into the autec base Uh, we were there at the history channel the history channel the next day asked me in the daytime to accidentally go in uh, <laughs> I, 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 got away with that once. <laughs> for the studio audience. 
<laughs> but anyway, uh, wow. stories like that. We've seen lots of weird stuff there. Yeah. Um, wow. Um, you know, and that's a that's a perfect time because we're almost out of time already. Oh. The boy, this goes by so fast. I would like to say before we ask you for your contact info and where people can find out more about you and get your fascinating books, they're fascinating, <laughs> is that you'll be with me, shameless self-promotion, <laughs> uh, this coming Monday, the 27th, on Kindness Beyond the Veil at the 2 to 4 p.m. edition, which is on uprntalkradio.com. Uh, that very night, uh, Monday, uh, here at WCETFM, my wife, Terry, will be my guest. <laughs> She's been raised in a haunted house. She's been into the paranormal for a long time. We've had all sorts of experiences, but her point of view is much more fascinating, and that's going to be wild. And we do forewarn the FCC that she will be on <laughs> <laughs> 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern. You better warn them ahead of time. WCTFM.com. <laughs> yeah, I know. Chip, so, you sound I'm like you're feeling a lot better. Oh, well, these stories. He's man. on with us. That's why. <laughs> yeah, there Trust you go. Me, as, as soon as this is over, I'm crashing big time. <laughs> I got you. All but right. I am uplifted because I love you and I love my Thank brother you. Timmy here. <laughs> um, but yeah, Kindness Beyond the Veil, Monday. 2 to 4 p.m. with Dr. Gregory L. Little, uprntalkradio.com, and 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on WCETFM with my wife, Terry Reichenthal, my honored guest. Timmy, how about you? And then we'll get Greg's info. Yeah, I want to let the listeners know that all our archives can be found on the Paranormal Radio app, Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, uh, Podbean, and wherever else uh, great shows, archives can be found on. Yeah. Yeah, every podcast available to humankind. Greg, where can people find out more about you and your books, your fascinating, phenomenal books, which we absolutely highly recommend, all well, of I, them? I would recommend uh, to find the books, go on Amazon. I almost hate to say that, but that's it. Uh, they've, a lot of bookstores are out of business because of them. But nevertheless, Amazon, put my name in, Gregory L. Little, and you'll see lots and lots of possible books pop up. Denise of Origins, the most recent one. I have an encyclopedia of Indian Mounds, mm -hmm. uh, Path of Souls, loads of others. Just go there. I'm on Twitter, uh, and it's Dr. Greg Little 2. And I'm on Facebook. It is Gregory L. Little on Facebook. And apmagazine.info, apmagazine.info. It's a pleasure, guys. You guys are always great. Oh, we uh, love you, brother. I can't believe two hours is gone. <laughs> I, I had more I wanted to say. I can't believe I made it through the whole show. That's why we'll have to have you back, good. Greg. Yeah. Well, always, we'll always do fun. it again. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Including next Monday, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern. Yes, I will be there, or I will send my doppelganger. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'd better be fully healed by then. Yeah. You haven't heard that term in a while, I guess. No, no, I haven't. Well, you know what it is, of course. Of yeah. course. We saw yeah. Fight Club. Yeah. Chip, and don't forget, Saturdays from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern on uprntalkradio.com. Uprntalkradio.com, Supernatural Realm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. That's when the, I got to send you the last one. It, really good. Just saying. Did I hey, send check you? out Edgar Casey, too. EdgarCasey.org. Go there. C-A-Y-C-E. EdgarCasey.org. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And lots of information. I've been there. It's just a boatload oh, of, love of really awesome information. It really is. All right, brother. All right. Time to get out of here. Up next, uh, Late Night in the Midlands with uh, the great Michael Vera. Up next on WCTFM.com. Good night, everybody.